sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in, uh, have a seat. Uh, the individual to my right, along with uh, managing domestic duties here, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from the uh, source books. Her name is uh, Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Now that it's uh, October, we've been uh, gaining some new listeners looking for suitable Halloween listening, whom I'd like to welcome. And I do hope our regular listeners are enjoying the season, as always. Uh, feeling rather celebratory ourselves, we will be putting together a little something special for our listeners this month. I thought we weren't going to announce it. No, just say it's a little extra. An unexpected treat in your Halloween bag. My Halloween bag? The, the listeners. M- metaphorically, Sometimes it's... you seem to be talking to me, and sometimes you seem to be talking to that chair. It's just confusing. Like you welcoming in an imaginary listener every time. Not every time. We, we did have an actual guest in once, but... Oh, the... I know. My brother told me. He was my uncle, too, you know. It was know. my mistake for offering him the brandy. And how you had him removed by the police. <laughs> it was for everybody's safety, and, and there was top-shelf stuff he was draining. He stopped talking to us after that, you know. Then, two years ago, he punctured an eardrum, and now he says little things made out of string on the sidewalk. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I suppose it's my fault for wanting listeners to feel included. The... Empty chair is just a symbolic way of doing that, including listeners. Well, it's your show, but if it were mine, we'd have actual listeners visit. Maybe not during recording, but for a Halloween party, for instance. I'm sure they'd love that. Not, not that we... What do you mean, things made of string? I knew you'd change the subject. I don't understand. Don't you, of all people, do anything to celebrate Halloween? This will be my first Halloween away from home, and I'd very much like to organize some sort of festivity. If Madame Darnley's in the States, we've had her fly out to do some fortune-telling, just for fun, of course. Uh, But she's uh, back in England. Dead, I think. She was in intensive care. Well, if it's fortune-telling you want, that's something I can do. You mean tarot, or...? No, no, I don't need cards. It's just a sensitivity I've developed. It's unconventional, but for instance, I knew that something was amiss with my brother the night before it happened. So did Mother. We just didn't know the specifics. You mean it's an inherited ability? No, it's just something... Something that happens if you work around bees long enough. And we've worked with them for generations. You talk to the bees? No, they talk to me. Certain bees. The special bees. Some of them are very old. Mother called them the grandmother bees, or just grandmother, as in, let's ask grandmother. You know how there's a sort of collective intelligence to the hive? Anyway... This is my first Halloween away from home, so I'd like to make it special. And I'm willing to do all the preparations myself. I'm just putting that out there. 
Okay, uh, I think we'll just take a little break here, and then I'll be back with episode 34, The Goblins Will Get You. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a uh, historical context. I uh, started the show as a way to uh, further explore this area of intersection uh, after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive a number of uh, monthly rewards related to the show, and I'll have more on the rewards and uh, Patreon at the end of the episode. Once it was a little boy, he wouldn't say his prayers. The lamp wick sputters, and the wind says, She saw two great big black things standing by her side. They snatched her through the ceiling before she knowed what she was about. And the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. If you don't watch out. The old woman's voice you've heard is one of what must be at least a dozen recordings on uh, YouTube of grandmothers reciting this poem, Little Orphaned Annie, by James Whitcomb Riley. It was quite a popular recitation piece in the early 20th century and was inspired by an actual orphan employed briefly as a nanny in uh, Riley's childhood home, one who in real life was also known to treat her charges to spooky witch tales. Though the poem was written in 1885, it must have been particularly popular in the uh, 1910s and 20s as it provided inspiration not only for the uh, Little Orphan Annie comic strip, but also the uh, Raggedy Ann doll. The reason I included this poem is to remind us that a goblin is a boogeyman, uh, um, an amorphous creature that's really defined by what it does, that is frightenous, than by any other set of uh, particular traits that we can define. And our word boogeyman is etymologically tied up with goblins. In the word boogie, you can hear the connection to uh, Northern English and Scottish words for goblins, uh, boggart and boggle. Um, To have your mind boggled comes from the notion of being misled by goblins' tricks. And all of this can be confusing as goblins tend to overlap tremendously with all manner of other folkloric beings, uh, dwarves, gnomes, elves, fairies, and even ghosts. Here comes the bogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you. He'll catch you if he can. Of course, there are a few attributes we can define. Goblins are always ugly and almost always smallish. They are usually malevolent, but there is a type of goblin that may serve benevolently in a home or farm, though these tend also to be mischievous and can become uh, quite wicked when annoyed. Because this uh, sort of creature overlaps so amorphously with others, one way uh, to not get lost along the way is to focus on the name itself and see what that's tied to. 
One of the earliest appearances in print comes from the Anglo-Norman historian Odoric Vitalis, around uh, 1100. In his uh, Historia Ecclesiastica, he tells the tale of the 5th century Norman uh, Saint Torinus of uh, Evre. It's uh, jammed, packed with miracles performed by the holy man, including preserving a young woman from the fire to which a demon has cast her, uh, escaping execution by causing the executioner's hand to wither, resurrecting the son of the local consul, and uh, various uh, battles in pagan temples to Diana. In one of these, he immobilizes the priests with the sign of the cross. In another, he invokes from an idol a spirit who is then carried off by an angel, namely the devil Zabulon, who is described as... A black Ethiopian with a long white beard, breathing out flames of fire. And there is another demon which uh, the author names as Gobelinus, which uh, translated into Latin rendered as goblin. It was known to shapeshift between three different shapes, that of a bear, a lion, and a buffalo. Unlike Zabalon, however, this spirit is not exorcised to the other side, but after being expelled from the temple, continues to haunt the city, but is restrained by the saint's power from causing actual harm. Because it obeyed the command of St. Torinus by breaking its own idols, it was not forthwith cast into the pit, but undergoes its punishment in the very place where it had reigned supreme, by witnessing the salvation of those whom it had before insulted and tormented. Now, this name is also used by uh, other writers in Normandy during this period. In his poem, The Story of the Holy War, Ambroise of Normandy makes a passing reference to a deceitful character being... More false than a goblin. Uh, that is, in the old French at least, it's uh, gobelin spelled with the, an E in the middle, otherwise the same as English. So the poet here is assuming readers are familiar with this concept. This word, which you know is in French Normandy, would then filter into English Normandy and into Middle English. Somewhere between 1380 and 1390, we finally have the word for the first time printed, as we know it, in English, in John Wycliffe's uh, translation of the Bible, in which he renders a verse of the 91st Psalm as... Thou shalt not have fear of the terror in the night, of an arrow flying in the day, or of a goblin going in the darkness. Now, bear with me, just a bit more etymology. The first part of the word that's used in Normandy, that is G-O-B-E, means... Hollow in a rock face. Which in itself might not be interesting until you look at the German word for goblin, kobold, in which the root K-O-B-E in Middle German also means... Hollow in a rock. Which brings us to the interesting part of all this... Goblin metal. This is an old word for the element cobalt, one given by German miners referencing the uh, cobalt, of course. Uh, though cobalt's a very nice in producing blue tints in glass, and jewelry, and uh, paint pigments, it provoked fear and superstitions when smelted as it would produce lethal fumes containing arsenic. And one final... Uh, etymological observation. 
The uh, Welsh word for goblin, coblin, uh, spelled with an initial C, appears to derive from the uh, Norman word, but it also means knocker, uh, one who knocks, uh, and is used for a species of goblin that knocks. These uh, creatures became an obsession with uh, Welsh and particularly uh, Cornish miners, and the superstition eventually spread with immigrant miners into the United States. So these particular goblins lived exclusively in mines and were usually invisible, but if glimpsed, were described as carrying and uh, wearing their own versions of traditional miners' gear and clothing. The uh, knocking sounds produced by their tiny hammers would direct uh, miners to sites rich in minerals or could warn of impending tragedies. In the case of the latter, the knocking sounds were often explained as the actual sounds of support timbers cracking when collapse was imminent. In their helpful aspect, the knockers are like household goblins we'll be discussing later, but like uh, all goblins, they have a mischievous side and were known to steal tools, uh, tamper with equipment, and play other pranks. To appease the knockers, Cornish miners would often bring extra food in their lunches to leave as offerings for their invisible neighbors. Other superstitions attached to the knockers, such as the belief that uh, whistling in the mine or the presence of women in the mine would provoke them. It was also believed that uh, the only days work could be done in absolute safety underground were Saturdays or Jewish holidays, as the knockers were believed to be the spirits of Jews who had crucified Christ and were therefore banished in the afterlife to slave away in the uh, tin mines of Cornwall. The belief was also found further east in Wales and all the way up in the mines of Northumberland, where an 1863 edition of the Colliery Guardian reports on a particular famous knocker named Shill Bottle Blue Cap, who would manifest as a light blue flame which would flicker through the air and settle on a full coal tub which immediately moved towards the rolly way as though impelled by the sturdiest sinews in the working world. In the 1820s, as miners migrated from Cornwall to work in the coal mines of Pennsylvania, the knockers were said to accompany them by sneaking into their luggage. A couple decades later, when gold was discovered in California, belief in the knockers spread to mines of the West, as mine operators were particularly eager to hire experienced Cornish miners, or Cousin Jacks as they were nicknamed by the mine bosses who would often pay transatlantic passage to recruit workers' relatives back home. Somewhere along the way, knockers in this country became Tommy knockers and uh, gracefully shed their anti-Semitic origins to become the spirits of particular miners who died in the mine in question. The Mamie R. Mine near Cripple Creek, Colorado, became particularly notorious for cave-ins and other accidents supposedly caused by the Tommyknockers. An especially tragic incident occurred on Christmas Day of 1894. Miners had been called in on the holiday to bail out water from a Christmas Eve flood. As buckets were being hoisted from the lower levels, the windlass used was said to have exploded into pieces 
and as the load plummeted, the attached rope snapped around a member of the crew, neatly taking off his head. The cursed mine was closed for good in January of 1895, just as the Tommyknockers wished. Well, enough about mining. Let's uh, come up for air in uh, Scotland. In particular, uh, I'm talking about Yester Castle in East Lothian. While its above-ground structures have uh, largely crumbled away, it's uh, more renowned for its remaining subterranean vaults. The underground space is known as Goblin Hall. Its origins were romantically described by Sir Walter Scott's poem, Marmion. Of lofty roof and ample size, beneath the castle deep it lies, to hew the living rock profound, the floor to pave, the arch to round. There never toiled a mortal arm, it all was wrought by word and charm. Sir Hugh de Giffard, also known as the Wizard of Yester, built the castle sometime before 1276, supposedly aided by an army of goblins summoned for the purpose. It was in the subterranean vaults that he was said to practice his occult rites, and Scott has him very much dressing the part. But in his wizard habit strange came forth a quaint and fearful sight, his mantle lined with fox skins white, his high and wrinkled forehead bore a pointed cap such as of yore. Clerks say that Pharaoh's magi wore, his shoes were marked with cross and spell, upon his breast a pentacle. One other weird story is told of the magician, that of a magic pair given to his daughter Margaret upon her marriage to Brune of Colston warning them that as long as the fruit was safely preserved, the family would prosper. For hundreds of years, the Colston pear, as it's known, was preserved in a silver casket and all was well. But in 1692, a baronet inheriting the estate decided the um, centuries-old pear still looked tasty and took a bite. Misfortune quickly followed, uh, gambling debts forced her to sell the estate to her brother, who himself was swept away in a freak flood. The pear, which has not been sampled since, is still kept at the estate and appears in contemporary photographs, if not exactly magical, perhaps a bit less mummified than you might expect of a 300-year-old fruit. And there's also something called the Goblin's Cave in the uh, Trussocks region of Scotland, near Loch Lomond, uh, namesake of the uh, well-known Scottish song. Uh, that one. Um, it's located, uh, predictably enough, in a mountain known as Goblin's Mountain, and rumored to be a hideout of the folk hero Rob Roy. The cave, and its uh, Gaelic name, was also described by Walter Scott in his 1810 poem, The Lady of the Lake. By many a bard and Celtic tongue has Corinan Orskin been sung. A softer name the Saxons gave and called the grot the Goblin Cave. 
Grey superstitions whisper dread, debarred the spot to vulgar tread, for there, she said, did fays resort, and satyrs hold their sylvan court. Scott's equation here of satyrs, fairies, and goblins uh, is a prime example of the sort of folkloric overlap I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, the cave is also associated with another well-known bit of music, oddly enough, Ave Maria. While it's often assumed to have been written as a Catholic hymn, the song is actually a composition by Franz Schubert, originally named Ellen's Dritter Gesang, or Ellen's uh, Third Song, is written as part of seven songs to accompany Scott's The Lady of the Lake. It's a prayer said by the character Ellen while she stays with her exiled father in the Goblin Cave on the eve uh, her would-be lover and clan chieftain Roderick Dew departs for war. And we have one last reference to goblins by uh, Sir Walter Scott, namely the goblin who serves as a page to Lord Cranston in Scott's 1805 poem, The Lay of the Last Minstrel. The song, that is, of The Last Minstrel, uh, tells a story inspired by Scott's collecting of ballads for his book Minstrelsy of the Scottish Border. It tells of an aging minstrel who arrives at a castle, and in return for the hospitality of his host, the Duchess of Bucklow, sings tales of her 16th century ancestors. I won't try to explain the plot, but it's uh, liberally sprinkled with pleasingly supernatural elements, and not only the goblin or dwarf whose malevolence and shape-shifting and magical mischief uh, drives the plot, but the uh, father of the Duchess is a wizard from whom she has acquired the ability to talk to spirits and whose body, uh, the wizard's, lies in the castle crypt, strangely incorrupt and clutching a book of spells. Scott gives the goblin a line to repeat as a sort of refrain throughout the work. Lost! 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 which, as it turns out, was borrowed from a local legend of a goblin by the name of Gilpin Horner. The legend was suggested as a poetic element by Jane Scott, Countess of Dalkeith, who had married into the Bucklew family. The folkloric goblin, Gilpin Horner, was said to have become attached to a local farmhouse and had a reputation for battering children who displeased him, uh, enjoying sweet cream, and also crying, Lost! 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 It's presumed in the folktale, as well as in Scott's poem, that the goblin is servant to some other dark power, which has lost him and will one day reclaim him, making the uh, goblin's cry of lost, ironically, more like a sadly temporary cry of freedom. In the legend... One day, a voice from who knows where is heard to cry his secret name. Gilpin Horner! And with that, the goblin disappears forever, or has been found by his uh, dark master. Scott adds a bit more melodrama to the uh, disappearance of his goblin page. Then sudden, through the darkened air, a flash of lightning came. 
So broad, so bright, so red the glare, the castle seemed on flame. Full through the guests' bedazzled band, resistless flashed the levin brand, and filled the hall with smoldering smoke, as on the elvish page it broke. To arms the startled warders sprung, when ended was the dreadful roar, the elvish dwarf was seen no more. In the lay of the last minstrel, there is no name spoken to reclaim the goblin, but there is a half-visible presence that comes to take him. And on the spot where burst the brand, just where the page had flung him down, some saw an arm and some a hand, and some the waving of a gown. And this is the gown of the still-living wizard lying in the crypt, whom the poet has named Michael Scott, after an actual legendary Scottish wizard. I have one more site in Scotland historically associated with goblins, but it is a goblin of a particular species known as the Redcap. For a description of the Redcap, let's uh, hear from uh, folklorist William Henderson's 1879 book, Notes on the Folklore of the Northern Countries of England and the Borders. He is depicted as a short, thick-set old man with long, prominent teeth, skinny fingers armed with talons like eagles, large eyes of a fiery red color, grisly hair streaming down his shoulders, iron boots, a pike staff in his left hand, and a red cap on his head. When benighted or shelterless travelers take refuge in his haunts, he flings huge stones at them. Nay, unless he is much maligned, he murders them outright and catches their blood in his cap, which thus acquires its crimson hue. This ill-conditioned goblin may, however, be driven away by repeating scripture words or holding up the cross. He will then yell dismally or vanish into a flame of fire, leaving behind him a large tooth on the spot where he was last seen. The particular haunts of which Henderson speaks tend to be the uh, ruined or ancient fortresses along the Scottish-English border, such as Hermitage Castle, a particularly imposing structure near the Scottish village of Newcastleton. It's uh, widely regarded as haunted, particularly by the spirit of the goblin Robin Redcap and his sorcerer master known in legend as Bad Lord Solis. Sir Walter Scott, who included the uh, traditional ballad Lord Solis in the uh, minstrelsy collection I've mentioned, uh, provides additional notes on the legend explaining that the castle's dungeon was a location of secret rites involving the blood of innocence, into which his henchman, Robin Redcap, would of course necessarily be dipping his cap. Um, like the Goblin Hall, Hermitage Castle was said to have been built with supernatural assistance, and the spirit of the necromancer is said to return to this cursed spot every seven years. Scott writes... The castle of Hermitage, unable to support the load of iniquity, which had been long accumulating within its walls, is supposed to have partly sunk beneath the ground, and its ruins are still regarded by the peasants with peculiar aversion and terror. 
Solace's knowledge of the black arts was supposed to have been acquired from the previously mentioned magician Michael Scott, who was actually a gifted mathematician and scholar of the period to whom various legends resembling those of uh, Dr. Faustus were attached. In truth, what uh, probably blackened the reputation of the actual William de Solis, uh, turning him into a necromancer and sadist, was the fact that he conspired against Robert the Bruce in the 14th century wars for independence. A uh, final and particularly grisly element of the uh, Lord Solis legend involves his death at the hands of 360 knights and squires who rose against him. Knowing their battle against Solus would be one against supernatural powers, they consulted a figure known as Thomas the Rhymer, or True Thomas, a uh, legendary prophet whose uh, revelations were recorded in rhyme, a figure who's actually based on an actual Scottish laird, Thomas Lermont. Thomas had ascertained that Solus was supernaturally protected against uh, death by steel or rope, and so he tries to create enchanted ropes of sand, but these fail. Uh, so it's decided that Solus must be restrained by wrapping him in a sheet of lead, after which his enemies intend to boil him to death. Uh, for some reason, uh, this permission to do so is requested from the king, who responds, uh, according to Scott, Boil him if you please, but let me hear no more of him. The site of this exotic execution is uh, said to be the Neolithic stone circle of nine stones known as the Nine Stone Ridge in English. The ballad, Lord Solus, tells the rest. On a circle of stones they placed the pot, on a circle of stones but barely nine, they heated it red and fiery hot, till the burnished brass did glimmer and shine. They rolled him up in a sheet of lead, a sheet of lead for his funeral pall. They plunged him into the cauldron red and melted him, lead, bones, and all. While the actual Willem de Solis is known to have died in prison in 1320, Scott points out that the boiling death is not without precedent in the brutal history of Scotland. When local lairds wished to dispose of a hated sheriff by the name of J. John Melville of Glenberry, he's said to have been thrown into a boiling cauldron with the conspirators pledging their secrecy by consuming a spoonful of the dead man's soup. The idea of goblins inhabiting the ruins of castles is not restricted to Scotland. In uh, Germany, there is uh, the ruined castle Hardenstein in North Rhine-Westphalia. It's in a mining region, which seems to have suggested an association with the uh, kobolds uh, who often live underground. Folklorist Thomas Kiteley, in his 1828 book, The Fairy Mythology, recounts the story of a particular creature attached to Hardenstein Castle by the name of Goldemar, or King Goldemar. The uh, royal title doesn't exactly fit the role here, but it seems to have been borrowed from older medieval legends in which the character of this name is an actual king of dwarves. In any case, the uh, folktale takes place in the days when Hardenstein was the seat of uh, King Neveling. 
a favorite member of the king's court is the goblin Goldemar, who appears only as a shadow or as invisible. He does, however, allow the curious to touch him and... His hands were thin like those of a frog, cold and soft to the feel. He plays the harp for the king and, because he's invisible, serves him as a sort of spy. All is well in Castle Hardenstein until a man, over-eager to see proof of uh, Goldemar's presence, scatters ash on the floor in order to see the creature's footprints, much to the displeasure of the goblin, who... hewed him to pieces, which he put on the spit and roasted, and he began to boil the head and legs. As soon as the meat was ready, it was brought to Goldemar's chamber, and people heard great cries of joy as it was consumed. After this, the goblin disappears forever, and an inscription appears over the door of his chamber foretelling misfortune for the house. Writing in 1828, Kitely says the pot in which the man was boiled can still be seen built into the castle wall of what was once the kitchen. Kitely relates another folktale from Germany with some similar elements, this one of a kobold named Hüdeken, or Little Hat who was the companion of the Bishop of Hildesheim. He is uh, generally helpful, providing the bishop with uh, prophetic insights and making sure that the night watchman uh, doesn't fall asleep on his post. But one day, he is crossed. One of the scullions in the bishop's kitchen used to fling dirt on him and splash him with foul water. Hurkin complained to the head cook, who only laughed at him. Since you won't punish the boy, replied the kobold, I will. In a few days, I'll let you see how much afraid of him I am. And he went off in high dudgeon. But very soon after, he got the boy asleep at the fireside, and he strangled him, cut him up, and put him into the pot on the fire. When the cook abused him for what he had done, he squeezed toads all over the meat that was at the fire, and he soon after tumbled the cook from the bridge into the deep moat. We've been hearing a lot of goblin stories, but what about hobgoblins? These are the creatures attached to particular homes or farmsteads, as the knockers were to mines. The last several goblins I've uh, mentioned, those serving particular nobles, could therefore be hobgoblins. The word hob could uh, mean hearth, uh, here designating that attachment to a particular hearth and home. Uh, in fact, the word hob alone in uh, the English Midlands and northern border regions could be used uh, by itself to designate this sort of a household spirit, but it's uh, not clear if this is just a shortening of hobgoblin or whether this was independent. Uh, these sorts of goblins, like the elves in uh, The Shoemaker and the Elves, could be very helpful, but would expect their favors to be rewarded with little offerings left out for them. Uh, John Milton, in his 1645 poem, L'Allegro, mentions such a... Drudging goblin. ...who earns a bowl of cream... ...by threshing a week's worth of grain in a night. There are plenty of other household spirits, particularly in Scotland and England's uh, north. Uh, brownies, uh, dobbies, silkies. The only reason the word hobgoblin or goblin would seem to be chosen over these would be to distinguish a higher level of mischievousness or malice should uh, your hobgoblin exhibit these qualities to 
a disagreeable extent, the only way to get rid of him seems to have been by giving him a new set of clothes. They find this very offensive, just a word to the wise. Yet another explanation for the word hobgoblin is that hob is actually a diminutive of Robert, like uh, Dick is used for Richard. Robert, in the Middle Ages, was considered a typically rustic or common name, so a hobgoblin would be a goblin of the country. Uh, Robin also happens to be uh, another diminutive of Robert, as in the name Robin Goodfellow. This uh, Robin character uh, from the fairy realm could be regarded as a specifically rural hobgoblin. He's more uh, playfully mischievous than malevolent and served as a sort of comic figure in a number of plays of the 1500s. Images of him appeared in several chapbooks also, such as uh, one titled Robin Goodfellow, His Mad Pranks and Merry Jests, which uh, shows him in the illustration as a sort of dancing satyr with erect phallus carrying a horn and a broom. Uh, versions of this booklet were published in 1628, 1639, and 1670. This chapbook includes stories, of poems, and songs about Robin engaged in various pursuits, uh, conspiring with a pair of lovers, helping a maid complete her work, uh, leading travelers astray on the heath, and other instances of punishing or improving behavior of the uh, lazy or greedy. In general, he's more fun-loving and comedic than malicious. Also mentioned in these chapbooks is Robin Goodfellow's association with the fairy court of Oberon, which, along with some similar rhymes, seems to have been influenced by Shakespeare's Puck, who also goes by Robin Goodfellow in the 1596 play A Midsummer Night's Dream. One of the fairies in the cast nicely sums up this character upon first seeing him. Either I mistake your shape and making quite, or else you are that shrewd and knavish sprite called Robin Goodfellow. Are you not he that frights the maidens of the villagery? Skim milk and sometimes labor in the quern, and bootless make the breathless housewife churn? and sometimes make the drink to bear no barm, mislead night wanderers laughing at their harm. Those that hobgoblin call you and sweet Puck, you do their work, and they shall have good luck. Are you not he? To which Puck answers, Thou speakest aright, I am that merry wanderer of the night. Shakespeare's uh, Puck, or Robin Goodfellow, ticks off all the essential traits of the hobgoblin, the knavish mischief, the, the help with domestic labors, leading individuals astray like the uh, boggle, boggling his victims, uh, even the, has the shape-shifting that reaches all the way back in our goblin history to the uh, 12th century gobelinus, uh, Odoric Vitalis describes, uh, which would change between a bear, a lion, and a buffalo. Sometime a horse I'll be, sometime a hound, a hog, a headless bear, sometime a fire, and neigh, and bark, and grunt, and roar, and burn, like horse, hound, hog, bear, fire, at every turn. A Midsummer Night's Dream has forever unified the characters of Robin Goodfellow and the Hobgoblin, 
with the name uh, Puck, which in itself was not a name for a class of um, supernatural beings, but was probably inspired by other goblin-like creatures with similar names. There is the uh, Old English Pukka, likely derived from the uh, Germanic family of creatures, uh, like the Old Norse Puki and other creatures uh, similarly named in Old Swedish and Icelandic. Um, but there are also uh, Celtic uh, creatures in Ireland, Wales, and Cornwall, and Brittany, all variously spelled, but generally pronounced more or less Puka, with the Welsh version being the closest to the English and Scottish Hobgoblin. We really don't know exactly what inspired Shakespeare's choice for that name, and we don't have time to go into the fine-tooth taxonomy of all these little creatures, but the poet was surely influenced by one of these in choosing that name. There once was a sad little goblin Who had a broken broom When he went anywhere it would wobble in the air and his heart would fill with gloom. I'll close with a couple incidents of so-called goblins uh, scurrying through our modern world. Uh, first, there were the Kentucky goblins, or the Hopkinsville goblins, uh, to be more precise with the location. They appeared in Kentucky one August night in 1955 out in the country, somewhere between the towns of Hopkinsville and Kelly. So they're also uh, given the name the Kelly Little Green Men. While they were compared to goblins in the press, what stuck was that descriptive phrase, little green men, inspiring a decade or so of jokes and songs like uh, George Morgan's 1961 number. Here come the little green men And if they land in your backyard Then you better not let them in The story was actually fairly dramatic with uh, five adults and seven children, members of the Sutton family, holed up in a farmhouse menaced by these creatures whom the uh, men held off with rifles for nearly four hours. This is all according to the Suttons, who said there were 12 to 15 of these creatures that would periodically pop up in windows and doors throughout the siege. The sound of gunfire eventually drew the police, who found no evidence of the incident aside from bullet holes in doors and window screens. The beings were actually described by the family as being two to four feet tall and having large pointed ears, claw-like hands, eyes that glowed yellow and spindly legs. And never green, an enterprising journalist just liked the sound of that phrase, I guess. The event today is celebrated with an annual festival in Kelly, Kentucky. That is so awesome. But did you also know this is the home of the Little Green Men Days Festival? It is. We love our Kelly Little Green Men Days Festival. Some vendors you may find include handcrafted wooden pens, alien and comic collections, jewelry, clothing, books, and a wide variety of crafts and services. Our festival features a 39-foot flying saucer when you arrive at the Kelly Little Green Men Days Festival, there's a $5 parking fee. Around the park and throughout the festival, you can find rides and games for both children and adults to enjoy. At the KCO tent, there are many cornhole sets for a friendly game among friends. Cornhole? 
You might be surprised to know that there are innumerable videos on YouTube purporting to document contemporary goblin sightings. A uh, 2019 example turning up in a number of compilations has often been tagged as a Dobby sighting thanks to its resemblance to the uh, Harry Potter character, which is itself a namesake of those uh, Scottish house goblins, Dobbies I mentioned. Just this September, the show Inside Edition claimed to have it all figured out. And uh, I'll close with this. It's the creepy video that freaked everyone out. I'm honestly just kind of scared. The creature was captured back in June on a motion sensor camera outside a home in La Junta, Colorado. Definitely not human, wrote one mystified observer. Another theory? It's a skinny kid wearing underwear on his head. Bobby, was that you in the video? Who do you think it is? Bobby with underwear on his head. I have some underwear to put on your head. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that if you do, you'll have the opportunity to uh, share uh, some of our episodes with friends who might also like this sort of thing. Uh, we particularly appreciate reviews uh, as these are the best way to raise the show's visibility on uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and other outlets. If you've left a review, by all means, let me know and we'll give you a little shout out. Our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group, Twitter, and uh, Instagram, along with uh, show notes with plenty of images and video links to uh, any uh, media film clips or music used in the program. Music and sound aside otherwise are all original for the show. You can also find our donor link on the site. Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to extra elements that go into the making of the podcast. Digital downloads of rare books we use, uh, the show soundscapes you hear in the background, uh, my Krampus book, and a special mystery kit mailed to our top-level donors. And this month we're sending one out to uh, people on Instagram who uh, find inspiration in Bone and Sickle and are part of the... Uh, Mab's Drawloween Club, if you want to check out our Instagram for details on that. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 exhausting hours that go into each episode. A special thanks to our new patrons, uh, David uh, Kuba, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, Todd Arlington, Philip Velasquez, and Barbara Marino. And thanks to uh, Stefan Steinecke for the kind review on the Swedish Apple podcast site, which I don't normally see. Uh, the show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. And Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>